Darkcast Network. Welcome to the dark side of podcasts. There are no happy endings in true crime. Hey, everybody. Welcome or welcome back to Crime Over Cocktails. I'm Tiffany, your host. And today I'm here with my friend, Dr. Joni Johnston, forensic psychologist, private investigator and author. Hello. Hey, it's great to see you again, Tiffany. Yes, I'm so happy to have you on. I know that you have a lot of experience with female violent offenders. I definitely do. I often evaluate violent offenders, um, I guess, you know, who've, for the Board of Parole, for ver- the Superior Courts. And so I've had the opportunity to interview and talk to many women who have been convicted of violent offenders and hear their stories and then do some comparison, I guess, in terms of, you know, female offenders versus male offenders. Right. And I'm sure there's a bunch. There are. I mean, of course, the reality is that, you know, 90% of murders are committed by men. So they're certainly a minority. But in terms of the capability of women to be as violent or as um, premeditated or as, you know, vicious as men, there's no question that we have that capability as women. Well, I think anyone is capable of hurting another one. It's just finding that uh, no, (laughs) so you don't do it. I I would agree with that. I mean, depending upon the situation, I think people... I mean, of course, you can talk, people think about things like if somebody's hurting your child or somebody's threatening you in self-defense. And then we have to kind of go, well, is that murder? Is it really murder if somebody's trying to hurt you and you hurt them or somebody's hitting your, you know, trying to hurt your child? But I think most of us can experience, can relate to having experienced just rage towards somebody at some point, you know, even if for a brief amount of time. And we, of course, most of us kind of talk ourselves down or distract ourselves or realize the potential consequences involved or have a sense of this is wrong or whatever. Um, And so we don't act on those, but there are, you're right. There are times. And I think, you know, we could argue that there may be extreme situations that I don't want to say they're never, they're never excusable by any means, but they're almost understandable in terms of people being able to relate to them. And I'm thinking of a a case we're going to be talking about right now. Yes. Shirley Ann Nelson is, is a woman who really, by all accounts, just a lovely person. I mean, one of the most striking things I think in in doing some of the research on her is just how well liked she was by everybody in the community. And even after she was arrested for the attempted murder of her husband, how many people really rallied to her defense. It was pretty remarkable because it's not uncommon to hear people say, oh, you know, I would have never thought this person would do this or this was the nicest guy or the nicest woman. But looking back now or whatever, you know, there's these kind of warning signs or whatever. And really, other than the month leading up to the attempted murder, nobody said that. Nobody said that. And even then, and you know, I'll tell you a little more of the story, but even then people said, yes, she was devastated. She was beside herself. She talked about some things. I mean, she definitely made some threats, but I never thought she would go through. Oh, wow. I didn't even know she was telling other people about those thoughts. 
she had told some friends, and I think they knew she was absolutely devastated. So just to kind of put a little context here, this was a woman who had been married. They had celebrated their 28th wedding anniversary uh, in May of 1995. They'd been married for a long time. And I think Shirley, I mean, yeah, Shirley was uh, 65, I believe, and her husband was 53. So there's a 12-year age difference between them, which had never been any issue between them. And as a matter of fact, if you saw pictures of them, you would never think that. They looked exactly the same age. I mean, she was very attractive. She was very youthful. She kept herself, you know, looking as good as possible. And, and they had also just seemed like a very lovely couple. People just really cared about them. He actually was working for Charles Schultz, who was the originator of the Peanut comic strip. So they were, you know, kind of living a very good life. She had worked early on in their marriage, but he had been financially successful and she had quit working years ago. They didn't have any children. She could not have biological children. That was something that they had, I think, decided not to adopt pretty early on in their marriage. And so they'd been very devoted to each other, had, you know, really just incredibly close in terms of did all these hobbies together, were involved in volunteer stuff together. I mean, we're together really all the time. So from Shirley's perspective, their marriage was as solid as it ever had been. She had absolutely no inkling. And then Moral Day weekend of 1995, her husband tells her that he has been having an affair for the past couple of months and he does not want to be with her anymore. And she is just blindsided by this and just... You know, I think initially, because he was 53 and she had made some comments to friends that he had a really hard time turning 50, I think she chalked this up to this is a midlife crisis. This is something that's temporary. It's not something that's going to ruin our marriage or whatever. And so initially, she, after she got over just the devastation of the news, I think she went into, okay, I have to save this marriage. That was kind of the mindset that she was in. And so she began working out more and she began, you know, asking him to do more things. And he ended up moving out of the house and she would invite him over. They would, they would play golf together a couple of times. He slept over at the same time. He's talking to her about this other relationship. And so, you know, we don't know where he was coming from in terms of, is this somebody who was ambivalent because he had this 28 year relationship? Is this somebody he's trying to let his, you know, his wife down easy? We don't know, but it's certainly, I think, complicated things for Shirley in terms of there wasn't a clean break initially. So there was some you know, ongoing contact and that gave her hope that, that they were going to get back together. And so she, you know, she tried everything and she begged to go to marriage counseling, which she agreed to do. And they went for a few weeks and she said to many, cause she had just a huge network of friends that she told was talking to. And, you know, this was absolutely devastating. Everybody who knew her well said, you know, it was, I mean, you know, we, we could all remember the times our hearts were broken and, you know, especially the first love or whatever. But, you know, people did talk about the fact that really he was her world. Ron Nelson was her world. And she was just absolutely just beyond devastated when this happened. As a matter of fact, she ended up seeing it being evaluated at one point and the psychiatrist diagnosed her with acute stress disorder, which is something normally reserved. It's kind of the precursor to post-traumatic stress disorder. And, you know, normally that's reserved for people who are in life-threatening car accidents, they're in war. And I think at that time, this was obviously many years ago, at that time there was more leniency on what the criteria could be. So that was part of it. I think the reason that they tightened up the criteria in subsequent 
you know, diagnostic manuals. I don't want to get too technical here, but now you really, to meet that diagnosis, you have to have literally a life-threatening condition. I mean, that's the only way you can meet that diagnosis. So there was definitely some more leeway that was allowed. So I think that was part of the reason he diagnosed her with that. But I also believe that from his perception, and not only his, but people who knew her, that she really felt like her life was at stake psychologically. Like her emotional life was at stake and her life was at stake. And so anyway, she, they went to counseling a few times and she finally said to him, you know, you're not even engaging in this. You know, you're not participating in this. And he said, no, I'm not. I mean, he's basically saying to her, our relationship is over. And I think she really believed that really sunk into her the earlier part of July and on, and she you know, she had said to some friends that she could not live without him. Um, she had told him at one point that she could not live without him and that, you know, she had made some statements kind of alleging that, you know, if I can't live without you, I'm not going out by myself. Now, he, she never directly said, I'm going to kill you if you leave me. But there were several people who said that she had made some comments like, this is not going to end well if he doesn't, you know, come back to me. And so she really did make these elaborate plans. And this is, again, somebody who has never, no criminal history, of course, no, no rule-breaking behavior. I mean, this is somebody who's just very, very clean, but she really spends from Memorial Day, and I don't know that she started init- immediately, but between Memorial Day and July the 5th, she goes and she purchases a gun. Um, there's a two-week waiting period. She bides her time. I mean, she's very patient about that. She asked the person to pick one out at the sales thing to pick one out. I don't know anything about guns. She, um, she has a dog that she's incredibly devoted to who's very old and has been very sick. She has him euthanized. She gives her parrot away. She writes 10 letters to different friends kind of basically saying, you know, I can't live without him, including Charles Schultz, who was a very good friend of hers, as was his wife. So they had become couples friends over the years. She changed her will, left her car to somebody that she, or I figure a fitness trainer. I mean, she was incredibly methodical. Oh. I mean, very methodical. In the morning, basically, she rents a car. I think she was worried at the time that he might recognize her car, and she drove to his office. And she taken, they didn't know this at the time, but she had taken a bunch of aspirin and a bunch of, I think it's Coumadin, which is a blood thinner. She was very much prepared to, you know, this, I think this really was somebody who was extremely suicidal and she was also so angry and hurt. It was like, initially the thoughts I think were, I'm going to kill myself. And then I think the anger kicked in and she thought, okay, again, I'm not going to go out by myself. I'm taking him with me. So she, she goes in his office and says, is he in? And she walks in and shoots him twice in the back. And um, shoots herself in the chest. People are just completely shocked. Nobody could figure out the his girlfriend Elaine. I think the thing that did that I didn't mention, which I think is very significant here, is that Elaine, his girlfriend, was forty one. I was going to say something like that. Wasn't she a lot younger? And even I think I don't think I know. I mean, I think that age was hard, but I think what was the absolute hardest? And this is where I think when you talk about just this perfect storm of somebody, it was like her worst nightmare because this is somebody that she's devoted to. This was her third husband. She got married when she was very young. Her first husband annulled their marriage when he found out she could not have children. 
her second husband had two other children and it brain brought and she was extremely attached her whole life to her stepchildren. Um, she kept, was just a wonderful stepmom and they, they divorced after 11 years. And I think she stayed as long as she did because she adored these children. She kept a relationship with them. I don't know that he was a great husband. She certainly didn't think so. And then she meets Ron and they had had a decision and he was like, no, I don't want to have kids. So that had been, that had, she was so happy about that. So it wasn't just the fact that, that he's, you know, he's now, we've been married 28 years. You're the love of my life. It was, he told her that we are thinking about having children. And I think that was probably really the, it, that was really, I think the thing that kind of pushed her over the edge. I could see how that would piss you off. Yeah. It was just devastating to her. I mean, I can relate to, I mean, I think most of us can relate to the grieving process that, that many women experience when they find out they can't have children. I think it's also important to think of the time. I mean, she and Ron got married in, in, their, in, in the 1960s. And so think of the pressure on women at that time to be mothers and, you know, be fertile. And so think of the, you know, the modeling she had growing up about what it meant to be, quote, a woman, right? So there was a lot more pressure, I'm sure, on her uh, at that time. And so it was absolutely devastating to her. So anyway, you know, there is, there's not a happy ending, of course. There never is a happy ending in true crime unless somebody is convicted. But, um, and even then it's not really happy. It's just justice, right? Ron does survive. He has He's very seriously injured. He's in the hospital, surely survives as well, which is a miracle because, I mean, she literally shoots him twice in the back and she literally shoots herself in the chest. I mean, she is not playing around. This is not a gesture by any means. And so they both spent time in the hospital. And and, and I think I was telling you, you know, what was kind of remarkable to me in, in doing some of the research was just seeing like, you know, even after this happens, just people were on her side, basically. Their he friends, was on her side. Their friends were live, rallied around her. Charles Schultz fired Ron Nelson a month after this happened. I don't think it was because that happened. As a matter of fact, apparently he had told him before that this relationship, because he knew what was going on. This relationship is in the office. Um, he was her secretary. Eileen was Ron's secretary. So he's like, this is not good. This relationship is not good. You're going to either have to get a new job or a new, you know, or in this relationship. So it was brewing, I think, in the works because people sometimes after the fact said, how callous can you be? This person was seriously injured. And so, and you just dumped him basically, but it, it was definitely more complicated than that. But he, Charles Schultz paid for her bail. You know, they all kind of rallied around her and she, she spent some time in a psychiatric hospital and got some therapy, um, almost had her bail revoked. Because um, she found out that uh, Ron had moved his new girlfriend to their house. And she made a comment about burning it down. And I don't think she was threatening per se. But, of course, that is not the kind of comment you want to make when you're out on bail, as you can imagine. I mean, that's not a good thing. Um, but she, she was not. And the interesting part of it is, well, the whole thing is so tragic on so many levels. But is that the first she goes to trial and she's, uh, you know, she is... Uh, she pleads not guilty by reason of insanity. The first jury is hung nine to three, nine. The first one, I think she goes to trial and they're charging her with premeditated murder and they, they almost acquit her. Nine jurors want to acquit her and three want to convict. And so um, she's getting ready to go to another trial and they end up offering her 
an unbelievable deal. She ended up getting one year in jail, 5,000, I think it's 5,000 hours of community service and three years of probation. Wow. So, you know, I think they were aware that, you know, that she was very sympathetic to the jurors and there's absolutely no reason, I mean, excuse for shooting somebody. I mean, I don't care how devastated you are if there's not, but she did have a very sympathetic, you know, a group of friends. And, and obviously she was seen, but, you know, the, the, the prosecutors knew that she is just an extremely, you know, sympathetic person. And, you know, especially the contrast. I mean, that's one thing they, I've read some interviews of the prosecutors that said that, you know, one of our biggest challenges is this was a person that everybody loved. She was a very giving person, a very generous person, didn't have an enemy in the world. This was so out of character for her. And the other thing was people talked about just the extent of mental health symptoms she was exhibiting at that time. She couldn't sleep by herself. She had her housekeeper move into the house with her. She was, her anxiety was through the roof. I mean, she wasn't making sense half the time. I mean, she was exhibiting a significant number of mental health symptoms. And, you know, what's interesting about that, Tiffany, I know some of the things that you're doing is that when we think about it, it, there's kind of a paradox here, isn't there? Yes. So there's this premeditation that is very clear. I mean, she makes no bones about that. And at the same time, she is exhibiting such mental health symptoms. I think what it, what it became is because she ended up pleading guilty and then getting the sentence is I think they used all the factors and all of her mental health symptoms as a mitigator to say, yes, she did do this, but we're going to use that as a mitigator in the sentencing part of that. And so she did her time. She reverted back to her maiden name once she finished with everything. And she died in 2008. What did she pass away from? Colon cancer. Yeah, she was, I think she was 78 and she had, you know, she had a relatively short illness, at least a short diagnostic period. She, I think, found she had colon cancer and then died a couple of months later. So I don't know, you know, too much about Ron Nelson and how his life, I did hear, I'm not sure, I can't confirm this though. I could be misremembering. I I think I heard that he did marry his girlfriend, but I I can't say that 100%. I'd have to go back and and really look, look that up. You know, she was just, like I said, I mean, even after, you know, she, she, she kind of came to, and she was in the hospital and people were saying that she was, what she was most devastated about was number one, that she didn't kill herself. She was absolutely devastated about that. And there was a lot of concern about if she was released, that she might kill herself. And of course, some people worried that she might try to to kill Ron again, although I don't think she at that point was going to do that. But the other thing was, is just how much she kept talking about how now I'll never get him back. It's like she was still delusional. Well, I think, I mean, I think she was aware. I don't think she was delusional, but I think what's interesting is that it was just not so much of, you know, I really made a big mistake or it was just more like I really closed that. Now I've done something, you know, like now I've done something wrong, almost (laughs) in that way. And you're like, yeah, you did. I mean, right. But it was almost like as before, she really was somebody who was, in some respects, the victim of circumstances in terms of, you know, her husband making a decision and falling in love with somebody else and all that. But it really was, it seemed like she was kind of, you know, more more hung up on that. That now I've done something. Now I've done something and there's no way he's ever going to come back to me. And of course, that was an understatement. I mean, he had already ended that relationship. And so it was kind of an interesting and in a, in a unusual case in, in a respect. I mean, not in terms of, unfortunately, spouses killing each other, because I don't know how many, what percentage of true crime cases we all cover have some 
theme along those lines, but certainly in terms of just some of the dynamics and just some of the, it being an older case was kind of interesting because you get a sense of how things were back then. And, and it, yeah, it was really, a, I mean, like all true crime cases, it was a tragic, very tragic case. But, but again, they both, they all ended up living their lives. I do think that Ron made a complete recovery. I think Shirley made a complete recovery, at least physically. And I'm hoping that she made a complete recover, emotion, recovery emotionally. I heard that she actually wanted to shoot the girlfriend too, but she wasn't there at the office that day. I have heard different accounts of that. Now, I don't know for sure what I have heard because there was, that was a big question. I have heard that she was, in fact there at the office and that she didn't know who she was, which one was her. I also heard that in her mind, even though she was and later on, she blamed uh, the, the girlfriend a hundred percent for everything. But in her mind at, at that point, I think even though she was extremely angry at, at Eileen and, you know, was saying all kinds of bad things about her to her friends and was saying, oh, my, my guy friends are saying that she came on to me before she came on to Ron and she's going through divorce. She goes from one man to the next. I mean, I don't know if there's any truth to that. It's irrelevant, really, in terms of the actual case. But she wrote, she actually wrote one of the 10 letters that she wrote was to Eileen. So... I don't think she ever really planned to kill her. And I don't know why that is unless she felt like, even though that this person was trying to quote seduce her husband, that her husband was the one that she wanted to be with. And this was some kind of way of reuniting them. And he was the one, I think, who broke the sacred bond between the two of them. But the fact that she did write him a letter as part one of those 10 letters does kind of make me think that on some level, she didn't plan to kill her. So I don't know for a fact that she was not there. I don't know for a fact that, you know, that she didn't recognize her because I know she had met her or seen her at that point. So yeah, that'll always be kind of a mystery. But it, I, I think in a way she was kind of thinking, if I, I'm going to take Ron with me, I'm going to have him and I'm going to leave you with nothing. Right. That would make more sense <laughs> to write a letter and being like, I mean, you know, you had your chance, you lost it. It is. It's an interest. It really was a very interesting case. It was interesting to, I mean, it's, it's a couple of things. I mean, you see some of the cultural changes and reading back through some of the trial transcripts and things like that. And then you just realize that, you know, we're all just people who love and hate and get angry and get hurt and get happy. And I mean, and throughout time, we've all, you know, we've always been that way, you know, in terms of loving people and, and, you know, we've always had the capacity to Nothing, nothing. 1995 is, you know, 500 years ago. But I was struck. I was struck by certainly not for me. I was alive and well back then. Um, but, but, um, but yeah, it was just, I mean, it's just interesting because you just see some of the same, you know, some of the same, same things come up over and over again. And then you have these kind of odd, you know, cultural things that kind of come up that are, that seem like they're 30 years ago or 40 years ago. And it's like, but not the emotions. You know, the emotions are exactly the same. Oh, absolutely. Now I think they would have called that a um, uh, crime of passion. Yeah, you're, maybe you're right. Although it's interesting because that was the, that was the thing. Okay. There's no doubt that she was in an emotional state when she did, did it. But then you think, okay, but what about all this premeditation? Is that a crime of passion? Well, of course, if you're the prosecutor, you're going to say, what do you mean a crime of passion? 
Tiffany. I mean, here's somebody who spent three weeks putting all of our ducks in a row to go in. And, but then if you're the defense, you are going to say, this person was so overwhelmed by her emotions, her passion for this person, her devastation, her, that, that she didn't know, she didn't, she couldn't even think through. She couldn't make a rational decision at this point. So you can, you can kind of argue it both ways. I could totally see that. Good luck with the juror. <laughs> That'd be a rough one. At least for me, it would be. I think I, I, it's interesting because I think that times have changed in that way. I, I honestly feel like it, because you were, you were talking about looking at it today. I think if it was today, my guess um, is that she would have been convicted and she would have gotten a lengthy prison term. Because I think, I think we recognize as jurors and as people now that we have a lot more choices, a lot more freedom, a lot more control over our actions. We're responsible for things. And so I don't think we see women in this situation as victims as much as they did back then. Right. Um, yeah. We've seen enough of it now to be like, okay, like this, this is not going to be your, your scapegoat here. Like, no. And you're, I mean, people are so much more savvy about crimes and about motives and about, yeah, right. And intent and all those kind of things. We have so many people who watch true crime and watch court TV and law and crime. And they, they understand a lot of the legal part of things. And, you know, if you look at it from a legal point of view, just strictly from a legal point of view, there's a pretty sound argument to say this person attempted first degree murder. I mean, it, it meets all the criteria in terms of just the premeditation part of it. I mean, you can talk about the mitigation. And, and tip, I think today what would happen is, you know, she might have, she might get, you know, not the maximum even today because there would be some sympathy probably in the mitigation part of it. But I have, I, I can't imagine there being nine jurors today who would be like, let's let her go. You know, she's the poor woman, you know, she's suffering enough. <laughs> <laughs> whatever they were saying in the jury room. <laughs> Is Mothman really a supernatural force predicting impending doom? Did Apollo 11 really land on the moon? Did you find out if that was a cult living just two doors down that you waved to every single day when you got your mail? If these are things that you pondered when you should be sleeping, then I would like to welcome you to Creepy Confidential. I'm your host, Noelle, your resident weirdo Wisconsinite. I open case files on my favorite cryptids, cults, conspiracies, and other worldly creepy bringing you new cases, live broadcasts, and local lore. Some stories have been lost with time. Others are perhaps still happening today in your local communities, right under your very creepy noses. So get ready, creeps. It's Creepy Confidential. Thinking of being in control of your actions, we should jump to the case of Kimmy Hardy. Yeah, this is really a tough one, isn't it? It's so difficult. Uh, it's just a really, really terrible situation. And just, it, it's it, it's absolutely astonishing. I mean, I've read enough of these cases that they're rare. What is amazing, if you do the research, and we're, again, we're talking about a, what they call a fetal abduction case, although I guess this is a child abduction case. In most of these cases today, um, they'll actually, they'll murder the, the pregnant woman and attempt almost like a cesarean. Um, and that was not the case, you know, in this situation. It was 
you know, as many years ago in the 1990s, another 1990s case where a child was abducted. But this was a woman who was married, Kimmy Hardy, that was married to a man named Bob Hardy. Uh, they were married for a few years. She had told him she was pregnant. From all appearances, was pregnant. He said that she gained weight. He even said in the trial, which is kind of astonishing, that he heard the baby's heartbeat. And he put his head on her belly. He could hear a heartbeat. And I think it just shows, you know, wishful thinking can be very, very powerful. It really can be. But anyway, so he absolutely believed that his wife was pregnant. He was all excited. He didn't have any children. Um, you know, he kind of wanted a boy, but he didn't really care. But, you know, like he's, as he said at the time, like a lot of dads would like to have a son, even though they love girls, et cetera, et cetera. And so this went on for months, for, for months that, you know, she was telling him. What's interesting about this is this was not Kimmy's first radio in terms of pretend to be pregnant. She had claimed to be pregnant on multiple occasions. Um, she had been married to a man previously who said it was just astonishing. The more facts you read this case, you're like, if this was a movie, you'd be like, this is so stupid. Nobody's going to believe this. It's like, this actually happened. So this is a woman who, uh, I think this Bob was her fourth husband. She had been married. She had three children. One, I think one child by her first marriage and two by her second marriage. After her, the birth of her third child or her second with her second husband, they were, things were very tight for them financially. And he also had a child back with another relationship. So they were basically trying to support. They had three children who were living with them. One um, was he was paying child support. And he said, look, we cannot have any more children. That's, I mean, we can't. We just can't do it. And he acknowledged, he testified and said, you know, I was the one kind of driving this show. I was. And he said, I told her we got to do something. Now, why he didn't do something, we could debate for a good amount of time. But she ended up, reluctantly, I think, but went along with that when it got her tubes tied. And this was in, I think, 1984. So she could not have any more children that way. I mean, I guess she could have in vitro or something like that. So they get divorced, and she marries her third husband, who does not have any children. And they have children living with them. And she tells him that she's pregnant. And does this elaborate, elaborate hoax. Now, this time, you know, fortunately, things do kind of move to what we're going to be talking about, which is the situation with Bob Hardy and what happened. But she starts telling him after, I don't know, maybe six months or seven months of being pregnant that the baby's having some problems with the heartbeat. And she has to go to the doctor, but she never wants him to come with her to the doctor, those kinds of things. Um, and she literally goes to the hospital. I mean... I don't know how she, to this day, I don't know how she stages all this, but she literally goes to the hospital, gets in a wheelchair, has somebody, maybe it's Kimmy, call and say, I'm sorry, your baby didn't make it. So this man, her third husband, his name is, Escape, I think it's Mr. Smith, if I'm not, that's what I'm thinking, but this is her third husband. And he um, is very, obviously devastated by this. Zachary, they had named this, it was a little boy, they named Zachary. They have a funeral, you know, the town shows up, they're all supporting this couple. He is a veteran. He gets a, is able to get a plot at the cemetery, the veteran cemetery, you know, bury the baby, et cetera, et cetera. She claims to get pregnant a couple more times and miscarries. You know, the interesting part of that is prior to her getting her tubes tied, she, she had not done any of this. So I think there was genuinely on her part, a desire to have another baby. Because I, I have to tell you, in, in, in several fetal abduction cases I've read recently, it really was 
all about the relationship with the man. It was never about the baby. It, the baby was a means to an end. It just astonished me the first time I read up one of these about, about one of these cases because, you know, I, again, I understand what it's like to want a baby and not be able to conceive, or you've tried first, for, you know, you just get desperate or whatever. And what was astonishing is it's in several of these cases. Not only did they have multiple children previously, but they were oftentimes not even parenting them. They had just kind of left them or given them to the, you know, to the biological fathers or whatever. And it just became clear to me that, again, every case is different, but there are some common themes that you see. And one of the common themes that I saw in this is that it really was about the relationship, a way to cement that relationship and hold on to it. And so anyway, so, but I do think, and I I think there was a part of that um, for Kimmy, but it was more, I think, about being special for him or special to him. But she did want to be a mom again, I think she did. But I think it was, you know, so she she and her third husband get divorced and then she marries Bob Hardy. He has no children either. Not that long into their relationship, she tells, tells him that she's pregnant. Um, and he is just ecstatic about this. Just ecstatic about this. And again, this thing goes on for months and months. And, you know, she's, I mean, they are literally doing, they're registering, they're, get, you know, buying baby stuff. The interesting thing is, is, you know, this all comes out later, is she's also really shopping around for a victim in this time. And she contacts, she she talks to one woman and says, oh, I've got these baby clothes and I I don't need them anymore. And so obviously she's not looking pregnant when she doesn't have to. I'm not quite sure how that worked because, again, both her third and fourth husbands said she looked pregnant. I'm telling you. I saw her getting out of the shower. I don't know how she did it, but. Anyway, she so she approached this one woman, found out she was having a girl, and also I think this woman was for whatever reason was suspicious of her, and so didn't wouldn't go over to her house by herself, and so she just kind of disappeared, never got her the clothes, never followed up with her, and then she she had actually met Teresa in 1991. The Lunds had taken over Elise, that uh, which is horrifying when you think about it. I mean, it's bad enough to think about even doing it to somebody you don't know, but she knew this person. Mm. She knew she was pregnant. You know, she, again, she had, so what happened essentially is she lured her over to the house and she shot her in the back of the head. It looks like what she had done was ask uh, Teresa to get these baby clothes out of this like kind of crawl space. And when she bent down and she had the baby with her, the baby I think was about a month old. She brought the baby with her. And she literally just shot her in the back of the head, took the baby. She had done this elaborate setup before that with Bob, her husband. Um, she had told him that she wanted to have a home birth. She didn't want to go to the hospital because they couldn't afford it. So she had kind of planned all of that. She said that she was going to have a midwife. Uh, I think I think she named her Elizabeth. There was never been any indication that there was such a person existed. And so she had kind of prepared all of this to kind of, work for this, for this outcome. So the day that this happened, um, you know, she drove Bob to work. Teresa comes over. She murders Teresa. She takes the baby. And then she calls Bob and says, I just had the baby. I had the baby in the bathtub. It was incredibly fast labor and delivery. Elizabeth made it, but she's gone. And of course, you know, Bob did say, I thought that was weird. You know, why would, why would a midwife deliver your baby and then leave. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. But she said, I told him I was fine. And, you know, well, you know, from the very beginning, people start noticing. I mean, this baby is maybe six weeks old. This baby does not look like a newborn. 
there's no umbilical cord attached. I mean, so people start noticing that something's a little bit fishy about this, but nobody connects it to the fact that meanwhile, um, Teresa's husband is wondering where his wife is. And, and, and it's just such a tragic situation. They have three little girls. They had found out that they're having a boy. So the whole family was all excited about having a boy. And so the only positive thing that came out of this at all was that they were able to reunite the baby with his, you know, his family, except for Teresa, who, who she murdered. And, you know, I could go into, I mean, ter- you can imagine, Tiffany, this thing just gets wilder and wilder. I mean, anybody who's having a funeral and inviting people from the town, I mean, I think you start thinking, well, I, I mean, I don't know what else would, would not be possible. And she does. As a matter of fact, he smells this body in the basement. And she basically gives them this crazy story about this drug deal that went wrong and how somehow she got this baby because of this, you know, she had paid $3,000 for, she used to be a drug mule. I mean, this elaborate story. And she ends up literally talking him into helping her get rid of the body. He has no idea. And so he believes up until the fact when she finally says, when the police have her completely cornered, you know, he says to her, where's the baby? And she looks at him and shakes his head and he knows because again, you know, Bob had no idea this other baby was missing that, you know, that people were looking for her. He said, he he said at one point at the trial that he had seen something on the news about police are looking for, you know, a mom and a a baby, but it never made any connection. I mean, why would it? You've seen your, you think for the past nine months or eight, whatever, get bigger and bigger. You're buying stuff for the baby. I mean, you would never, you'd never think that. And so initially, as a matter of fact, um, Bob almost put himself in danger because when they tracked them down, that's a whole story in and of itself. Bob is still believing the police are harassing her, that it's because of this, these drug dealers. And he only comes out at one point with this, like some kind of metal thing and starts waving at the police and he could have gotten shot. And at that point is when I think when um, Kimmy realizes things are getting out of hand and she kind of calms him down and she does eventually tell the police the truth. And he is just, as you can imagine, just absolutely astonished by this. I can't remember how much time he got, but he ended up getting in trouble because he he did help conceal the body and do all these things after the fact. But he absolutely had no idea what was going on. And like I said, even after this body shows up, which he just cannot get his head around. He believes every, he believes everything that she tells him. He doesn't want to think otherwise. I, would your mind even go there? No, you know, it's <laughs> like so many times, you know, and I know you can relate to this. You just got back from crime, crime con a little time ago. You know, when something happens, especially when there's a serial killer and somebody's married to one, I mean, inevitably, People kind of go, how could she not know? Or how could he not know? And you kind of go, who would think that? Yeah, you might think, okay, my wife is fooling around on me or my husband's cheating on me or something is weird. But the first thing you are not going to go right to, my husband's a serial killer or my wife's a serial killer. I mean, you know what I mean? It's just, I mean, we don't want to go there. I mean, oftentimes there's no doubt that sometimes people do overlook things they, they look away they don't want to see certain clues but i'm t- you know i think you would agree that you know it, it would take a lot of steps in between everything is fine and i think my husband's a serial killer 
right? I have to put yeah. on different steps to reach that conclusion. It wouldn't be A to B, you know, unless you found something that was just extraordinary, you know. I don't know anyone that this ever would have happened to. So I couldn't, there's no way I would even wrap my head around that. And it's just heartbreaking. He was excited for a baby that he didn't get. Now this other baby lost the mother plus all her other children. It's just, it's so sad. And she still didn't get the baby. Yeah. It was for nothing. I mean, we talk so much in, you know, in, in about just the ripple effect of, of crime. It's, it really just keeps going, doesn't it? I mean, people recover. I'm a big believer that people are resilient and people can heal. But it's, I mean, it just affects her children, the victim's husband. We can go on and on. Kimmy's children, Kimmy's parents. I mean, you know, it just, the ripple effect, is, it's just astonishing sometimes to think how many people are affected by the actions of one person. Oh, for and, sure. Ruined like, everybody's life. You're right. And you made such a good point about just the, you have, you have at least two men who just longed to have a child. And to lead them on in that way is really cruel. To have the charade and to be pretending to be something that they're not. There's, I, I can't think of a justify, you know, I can't justify that under any, you know, under any situation. I cannot either. I did see that. They also, they found out that the boy was circumcised. So there's like, there's no way he popped out, no umbilical cord, circumcised. Like, this is one special kid. That's such a good point. I remember reading that as well. And and you, I think, you know, it's funny because you and I talk, we were just talking about the steps people have to go, go through. I mean, what I was found, found myself thinking is, okay, let me think about my sister this situation with my sister and me going over to see my sister's new baby and seeing this child as a mom that I'm like, there's no way. I mean, I'm trying to think, how would you, because people talked about after the fact, like we knew something was, was wrong. I mean, we, we have kids. We know that this baby did not, was not just born. He's pink. He's not wrinkly. I mean, he doesn't look like a new baby looks. And like you said, He's circumcised, the, his umbilical cord is completely gone. There's no black butt dot in the middle and all, all the things that we know about. And that I think is, I don't know how you, you know, what, what do you do with that? And I think what ended up happening in this situation, which I, is understandable, is you think something's not right here. You think, okay, what's going on? But are you really going, how, I mean, how much are you going to investigate? Are you going to say to your sister, let's go, this isn't a newborn. Or are you going to say it once? And she said, yes, it is. Or, you know, why are you being so, no- whatever. Are you going to just kind of like drop it? And that's what people did. Now, when I think more, more awareness came out about this baby, this other baby being missing, then people started then, you know, contacting police or speaking up or whatever. Before that, I think they were like, this is so strange. I don't know why, what's going on, but... I don't want to rock the boat, right? I don't want to be the one to kind of keep pounding it or whatever. Well, yeah, especially you think she just had a baby. She's already emotional. You're like, all right, we'll just kind of let it blow over for a little bit. And I don't know. That would be very weird. Very weird. Wouldn't it? I hadn't even thought about that. To think about the hormones that you think are flying around, which, you know, again, any of us who've been moms, 
you know, have a lot of empathy for because they just, you know, it's like, you feel like your emotions are just like this, like have around you, around you, just pulling you back and forth. <laughs> That's what it was like for me. After I first had a baby, it was just like, oh my gosh, you know, I just, you know, everything's kind of up in the air and topsy-turvy and stuff. Those emotions are flying around and I hadn't even thought about that. You would be sensitive to that. This person just had, went through a physical ordeal as well and just the hormones and, you know, all that would just be, would just add to it. Oh, for sure. I just can't believe that when they checked on baby Zachary, they found a teddy bear and bubble wrap. She buried nothing. I can't believe I didn't even mention that because that you just dropped the other shoe, Tiffany. That is such a good point of the story. It really is. I mean, Tiff, you're absolutely right that they literally dug up that coffin or casket and opened it up. You're right. And there was, it's so sad. I mean, you think about it, there's a teddy bear that, that um, her third husband had bought, you know, for the new baby. And that's it. And the bubble wrap, like you said, there's nothing else in there. Um, that just would have been, I can't even imagine. You must feel like you're in the twilight zone or something. And that would just be so bizarre. I would have the hardest time trusting anyone ever again. I think, I think you're right. And, and you know what? The, also, I'm thinking, okay, if I am either one of these husbands, not only would I wonder if I could trust another man again, but I would also, I think, wonder if I could trust myself. Because both of them talked about, you know, physically. I mean, I don't think there was any evidence. And tell me if you've, if you've read otherwise that she, you know, used any kind of apparatus or, I mean, because they both talked about having seen her naked and, you know, and so I don't know. I mean, I don't know how you can gain. I mean, obviously people can eat a lot and gain weight, but you don't gain that like you do when you're pregnant, all in your stomach. And just to think that, how would you even trust yourself? Or like this, the, the guy who says, I could swear I put my head on her tummy and heard the heartbeat. It, that would just, I think it would just be so challenging to wrap your head around about trusting other people and yourself and your own intuitions and all that. Oh, for sure. Because you're like, if that was total like there was nothing there to make you think otherwise. Everything was pointing in the right directions. So you can't even beat yourself up about it. There was nothing, nothing to beat yourself up about. So it makes it scary because if you couldn't see anything with this one, who's got something else up their sleeve? And you're absolutely right. I, I, I love the fact that you're emphasizing that, that, you know, nobody is to blame except for Kimmy Hardy in the situation. I mean, you know, we want to trust people. We want to be trustworthy. You know, I mean, because somebody is manipulating somebody else or taking advantage of them or lying to them is never the fault or the, or the responsibility of the person who's being lied to or manipulated. Right. He was just another victim. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. He was absolutely another victim. Um, and just, you know, and, and I'm sure it took him some time, both of the, of the men, but especially I think the last one, because... You know, he ends up getting in legal trouble and again, you know, going through this whole alleged pregnancy and, you know, thinking that he's literally coming home from work to hold his newborn son, you know, comes home and, and all this stuff, you know, keeps happening. Yeah, that would be like the worst. <laughs> That's not how you want to welcome a baby at all. Almost immediately you got the cops banging on your door, wanting to see him take footprints. And it's just, it's too much. It's so interesting to me sometimes 
how so often when when people plan a crime, you know, they plan, they'll plan it out so methodically and so, and and yet they have no plan for after. Yeah, like they, they they don't think about what after the fact. It's like it's just that's just kind of interesting to me. I mean, because you and I can sit here and kind of go, what does she think was going to happen next? I mean, does she think that you know that um, Teresa's husband was just going to be like, oh well, she's gone, and so is my son, so we'll just continue on our lives? I mean, there's no way that she wasn't going to get caught, and yet I don't think that Teresa was in any way going down that path. It was just thinking about right this minute, I'm solving this problem right now. And somehow I'll figure it out, as a, you know, after the fact. That's what we call a disorganized criminal. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it's, it, it is interesting, isn't it, that, you know, the, the, especially, especially the after the fact part of it. But, you know, how, how many times do we see, you know, husbands or wives who t- take it all this time and planning and they murder their spouse and then they move their girlfriend or boyfriend in their house Two weeks after the, the person died, they change everything. They throw all the other person's clothes away. I mean, they do the most suspicious things in the universe and somehow think they're now invisible. I mean, it's just the same thing. It's like, but I see that over and over. And I don't know if it's, it's so much energy goes into the planning of the actual murder. Or if they if the person thinks I've got because they aren't they aren't arrested immediately, they think I've gotten away with it. I don't know what thinking. I'd like to know what thinking because I often do you know do interview offenders who've been convicted of violent offenses, but it's years later, and oftentimes they've gotten caught relatively quickly. So I'm not able to talk with them about you know what were you thinking in the six months between what you did and when you were arrested or convicted. I'd be interested in knowing that. Me too. I would love to pick their brain. There was one lady I saw. She killed her husband, put him in a um, a Tupperware, kept him for like years. I want to say seven to ten years. She moved, moved him to the new house. What are you thinking? You had so many opportunities to get rid of the evidence, but you kept him the whole time. Yeah, I'm glad, really, for those of us who are not murderers, you know, that people don't think. I mean, how many times do we see people who end up getting arrested or convicted and then they're like, you look at their computer and it says things like how to dispose of a dead body and how did you, and you're kind of going, why would you use your computer, your own computer to look up all these searches? You know, and again, I mean, I'm glad that they do because we want justice to be served. I mean, we want people not to murder other people. That's the first choice. Yes. And the second one is you do. If you do, we want you to get caught at it. So, but yeah, it's, just, it's kind of, it is kind of mind boggling sometimes. Although, you know, maybe the ones who are, I don't know, more sophisticated don't get caught. I don't know. Right. Well, another thing we don't want you to do, ladies, is do not get pregnant to keep a man. Let's emphasize on that. <laughs> Like, that is not what you have a child for. I've never seen a situation end well for anybody. I really haven't. I agree. And I think that kind of, you know, kind of gets back to your talking about controlling. You know, we, we, we can all have very strong emotions. And I, I know how hard it is to deal with very strong emotions, you know, whether it's desperation or longing or whatever. But there just has to be that, that in-between you know, having these strong feelings or having this desire to hold on to somebody or whatever in action. And there just has to be more in between that, I think. 
audience, you're absolutely right. It's going to, I think, you know, people have gotten pregnant to, to, you know, to have a man or to, to catch a man, but I don't think they keep a man that way. You know, I don't think, right. Yeah. Not very often. Usually you end up a single mom. Yeah. Or if you're a dad who did it just to keep the woman, you're a single dad goes both ways. Yeah. Needs to do something inspiring. <laughs> right. like, this could be the most grim episode, Tiffany, that you've ever done. It's <laughs> like you're going to be getting mail. Like, please do not have Joni back on the show again because we are so depressed after. <laughs> I think it's good information for people to hear because people do go through so many emotions. And every relationship might bring up new, might bring up old, but you just got to keep remember to keep going and you can't force anyone to love you. You can't force anyone to be with you and you should never want that anyways. Exactly. I remember, this is a funny, this is a very personal story. My, um, my father-in-law was a, just a, a, a gem, but he had had a couple of very, well, one very difficult marriage, very difficult with my husband's mom. And so I can remember my husband teasing me right before we were getting married. He said, you know, my dad just pulled me in the room and said, all right, son, if you have any doubts, if you have any, if now is the time, I mean, you haven't walked down the aisle yet. And I looked at my husband, I said, 100%. If you have any doubts, now is the time because you're right. I mean, it would have been devastating. I would have been crushed. But when I think about somebody going through a marriage with me or anybody else, just because they've gone this far, I want somebody who wants to be with me. And I deserve somebody who, just like everybody who's listening to this. You deserve somebody who wants to be with you because you're worth it. And you deserve somebody who treats you well and wants to be with you. And if that person doesn't want to be with you or doesn't treat you well, that isn't the person for you. Absolutely. Don't settle or force it. You cannot force a connection. doesn't work. No, it does not work. It doesn't. And, you know, it's, you know, and I think that starts with what you're saying. It starts with valuing ourselves, you know, valuing ourselves. Because if we really value ourselves, nurture ourselves, take care of ourselves, we're kind of giving that message over and over again. I am worth it. Look, I'm taking care of myself. I'm caring about myself. I'm treating myself with respect. If I'm treating myself that way, then I should expect that from people in my life. And I also want to treat them the same way. It is a two-way street, but it should never be a one-way street. Right. Right. Because it's never going to turn into a two-way. If it goes a one-way, it's it's yeah. going to stay that way. Yeah, that, absolutely. Absolutely. So I don't know that that's inspiring, but um, I do hope that that is a powerful message because I do think you know, I do meet women sometimes and men as well, men as well. But I, I do think still, even in 2000, I'll see what you think, even in 2023, that women tend to, in general, give people the benefit of the doubt faster and, and, and are, you know, more likely to get caught up in a situation like that. I mean, I hear plenty of men as well. We just talked about a couple who got caught up in, you know, some very difficult situations. But I guess also I'm a woman, so I'm very very protective of other women. <laughs> yeah. Support them. So that's what the other place I'm coming from. Absolutely. You have to, you have to. Is there anything else you wanted to add or? No, just, um, 
I loved being on your show again. I'm so much a fan of what you're doing, and I look forward to continuing to follow you. Oh, thank you so much. I love having you here. I could pick your brain for hours. (laughs) Thank you, Tiffany. Thank you guys so much for listening. And if you know somebody who maybe needs to hear these things, please share this episode with them. Make sure you're following, liking, subscribing on all the channels. Leave that five-star review. And we'll talk crime another time. Bye.